0: Book the third, part six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twelve, Darkness. Sidney Carton paused in the street, not quite decided where to go. At Tellson's Banking House at nine, he said with a musing face, "Shall I do well in the meantime to show myself? I think so." It is best that these people should know there is such a man as I here. It is a sound precaution, and may be a necessary preparation. But care, care, care. Let me think it out. Checking his steps, which had begun to tend towards an object, he took a turn or two in the already darkening street, and traced the thought in his mind to its possible consequences. His first impression was confirmed it is best he said finally resolved that these people should know there is such a man as i here and he turned his face towards saint antoine defarge had described himself that day as the keeper of a wine-shop in the saint antoine suburb it was not difficult for one who knew the city well to find his house without asking any question having ascertained its situation Carton came out of those closer streets again, and dined at a place of refreshment, and fell sound asleep after dinner. For the first time in many years he had no strong drink. Since last night he had taken nothing but a little light, thin wine, and last night he had dropped the brandy slowly down on Mr. Lorry's hearth, like a man who had done with it. It was as late as seven o'clock when he awoke refreshed, and went out into the streets again. As he passed along towards Saint Antoine, he stopped at a shop-window where there was a mirror, and slightly altered the disordered arrangement of his loose cravat, and his coat-collar, and his wild hair. This done, he went on direct to Defarge's, and went in. There happened to be no customer in the shop but Jacques Three of the restless fingers and the croaking voice. This man, whom he had seen upon the jury, stood drinking at the little counter, in conversation with the Defarges, man and wife. The vengeance assisted in the conversation, like a regular member of the establishment. As Carton walked in, took his seat, and asked, in a very indifferent French, for a small measure of wine, Madame Defarge cast a careless glance at him and then a keener and then a keener and then advanced to him herself and asked him what it was he had ordered he repeated what he had already said english said madame defarge inquisitively raising her dark eyebrows after looking at her as if the sound of even a single french word were slow to express itself to him he answered in his former strong foreign accent yes madame yes i am english Madame Defarge returned to her counter to get the wine, and as he took up a Jacobin journal, and feigned to pore over it, puzzling out its meaning, he heard her say, "'I swear to you, like every monde!' Defarge brought him the wine, and gave him good evening. "'How?' "'Good evening!' "'Oh, good evening, citizen,' filling his glass. "'Ah, and good wine! I drink to the Republic.' defarge went back to the counter and said certainly a little like madame sternly retorted i tell you a good deal like jacques three pacifically remarked he is so much in your mind to see you madame the amiable vengeance added with a laugh yes my faith and you are looking forward with so much pleasure to seeing him once more to-morrow Carton followed the lines and words of his paper with a slow forefinger, and with a studious and absorbed face. They were all leaning their arms on the counter close together, speaking low. After a silence of a few moments, during which they all looked towards him, without disturbing his outward attention from the Jacobin editor, they resumed their conversation. "'It is true what Madame says,' observed Jacques three. "'Why stop?' there is great force in that. Why stop?' "'Well,' reasoned Defarge, "'but one must stop somewhere. After all, the question is still where?' "'At extermination,' said Madame. "'Magnificent!' croaked Jacques Three, The vengeance also highly approved. "'Extermination is good doctrine, my wife,' said Defarge, rather troubled. In general, I say nothing against it. But this doctor has suffered much. You have seen him to-day. You have observed his face, when the paper was read.' "'I have observed his face,' repeated Madame, contemptuously and angrily. "'Yes, I have observed his face. I have observed his face to be not the face of a true friend of the Republic. Let him take care of his face.' "'And you have observed, my wife?' Said Defarge, in a deprecatory manner, the anguish of his daughter, which must be a dreadful anguish to him. I have observed his daughter, repeated madame. Yes, I have observed his daughter more times than one. I have observed her to-day, and I have observed her other days. I have observed her in the court, and I have observed her in the street by the prison. Let me but lift my finger. she seemed to raise it the listener's eyes were always on his paper, and to let it fall with a rattle on the ledge before her, as if the axe had dropped. "'The citizeness is superb,' croaked the juryman. "'She is an angel,' said the vengeance, and embraced her. "'As to thee,' pursued Madame implacably, addressing her husband, "'if it depended on thee, which, happily, it does not, thou wouldst rescue this man even now.' no protested defarge not if to lift this glass would do it but i would leave the matter there i say stop there see you then jacques said madame defarge wrathfully and see you too my little vengeance see you both listen for other crimes, as tyrants and oppressors, I have this race a long time on my register, doomed to destruction and extermination. Ask my husband, is that so?' "'It is so,' assented Defarge, without being asked. "'In the beginning of the great days, when the Bastille falls, he finds this paper of to-day, and he brings it home, and in the middle of the night, when this place is clear and shut, we read it, here, of this spot, by the light of this lamp. Ask him, is that so? It is so, assented Defarge. That night, I tell him, when the paper is read through, and the lamp is burnt out, and the day is gleaming in above those shutters, and between those iron bars, that I have now a secret to communicate. Ask him, is that so? It is so assented Defarge again, I communicate to him that secret. I smite this bosom with these two hands, as I smite it now, and I tell him, Defarge, I was brought up among the fishermen of the seashore, and that peasant family so injured by the two Evremond brothers, as that Bastille paper describes, is my family." Defarge, that sister of the mortally wounded boy upon the ground was my sister. That husband was my sister's husband. That unborn child was their child. That brother was my brother. That father was my father. Those dead are my dead. And that summons to answer for those things descends to me. Ask him, is that so? it is so assented defarge once more then tell wind and fire where to stop returned madame but don't tell me both her hearers derived a horrible enjoyment from the deadly nature of her wrath the listener could feel how white she was without seeing her and both highly commended it defarge a weak minority interposed a few words for the memory of the compassionate wife of the marquis but only elicited from his own wife a repetition of her last reply tell the wind and the fire where to stop not me customers entered and the group was broken up the english customer paid for what he had had perplexedly counted his change and asked as a stranger to be directed towards the national palace Madame Defarge took him to the door, and put her arm on his, in pointing out the road. The English customer was not without his reflections, then, that it might be a good deal to seize that arm, lift it, and strike under it, sharp and deep. But he went his way, and was soon swallowed up in the shadow of the prison wall. At the appointed hour he emerged from it to present himself to Mr. Lorry's room again where he found the old gentleman walking to and fro in restless anxiety. He said he had been with Lucy until just now, and had only left her for a few minutes, to come and keep his appointment. Her father had not been seen since he quitted the banking-house towards four o'clock. She had some faint hopes that his mediation might save Charles, but they were very slight. He had been more than five hours gone. Where could he be? Mr. Lorry waited until ten, but Dr. Manette, not returning, and he being unwilling to leave Lucy any longer, it was arranged that he should go back to her, and come to the banking-house again at midnight. In the meanwhile, Carton would wait alone by the fire for the doctor. He waited and waited, and the clock struck twelve, but Dr. Manette did not come back. Mr. Lorry returned, and found no tidings of him, and brought none where could he be they were discussing this question and were almost building up some weak structure of hope on his prolonged absence when they heard him on the stairs the instant he entered the room it was plain that all was lost whether he had really been to anyone or whether he had been all that time traversing the streets was never known as he stood staring at them they asked him no question for his face told them everything. "'I cannot find it,' said he, "'and I must have it. Where is it?' His head and throat were bare, and as he spoke, with a helpless look straying all around, he took his coat off and let it drop on the floor. "'Where is my bench? I have been looking everywhere for my bench, and I can't find it. What have they done with my work?' time presses i must finish those shoes they looked at one another and their hearts died within them come said he in a whimpering miserable way let me get to work give me my work receiving no answer he tore his hair and beat his feet upon the ground like a distracted child don't torture a poor forlorn wretch he implored them with a dreadful cry but give me my work what is to become of us if those shoes are not done to-night lost utterly lost it was so clearly beyond hopes to reason with him or to try to restore him that as if by agreement they each put a hand upon his shoulder and soothed him to sit down before the fire, with a promise that he should have his work presently. He sank into the chair, and brooded over the embers, and shed tears. As if all that had happened since the garret time were a momentary fancy or a dream, Mr. Lorry saw him shrink into the exact figure that Defarge had had in keeping. Affected and impressed with terror as they both were by this spectacle of ruin, it was not a time to yield to such emotions. His lonely daughter, bereft of her final hope and reliance, appealed to them both too strongly. Again, as if by agreement, they looked at one another with one meaning in their faces. Carton was the first to speak. The last chance is gone. It was not much. Yes, he had better be taken to her. But before you go, will you, for a moment, steadily attend to me? Don't ask me why I make the stipulations I am going to make, and exact the promise I am going to exact. I have a reason—a good one." "'I do not doubt it,' answered Mr. Lorry. "'Say on.' The figure in the chair between them was all the time monotonously rocking itself to and fro, and moaning. They spoke in such a tone as they would have used if they had been watching by a sick-bed in the night. Carton stooped to pick up the coat, which lay almost entangling his feet. As he did so, a small case, in which the doctor was accustomed to carry the lists of his day's duties, fell lightly on the floor. Carton took it up, and there was a folded paper in it. "'We should look at this,' he said. Mr. Lorry nodded his consent. He opened it, and exclaimed, thank god what is it asked mr lorry eagerly a moment let me speak of it in its place first he put his hand in his coat and took out another paper from it that is the certificate which enables me to pass out of the city look at it you see sydney carton an englishman mr lorry held it open in his hand gazing in his earnest face Keep it for me until to-morrow. I shall see him to-morrow, you remember, and I had better not take it into the prison. Why not? I don't know. I, I prefer not to do so. Now take this paper that Dr. Manette has carried about him. It is a similar certificate, enabling him and his daughter and her child, at any time, to pass the barrier and the frontier. You see? Yes. Perhaps he obtained it as his last and utmost precaution against evil yesterday. When is it dated? But no matter. Don't stay to look. Put it up carefully with mine and your own. Now, observe. I never doubted, until within this hour or two, that he had, or could have, such a paper. It is good until recalled, but it may be soon recalled, and— I have reason to think will be they are not in danger they are in great danger they are in danger of denunciation by madame defarge i know it from her own lips i have overheard words of that woman's to-night which have presented their danger to me in strong colours i have lost no time and since then i have seen the spy he confirms me he knows that a wood sawyer living by the prison wall, is under the control of the Defarges, and has been rehearsed by Madame Defarge as to his having seen her—he never mentioned Lucy's name—making signs and signals to prisoners. It is easy to foresee that the pretense will be the common one, a prison plot, and that it will involve her life, and perhaps her child's, and perhaps her father's, for both have been seen with her at that place. Don't look so horrified you will save them all heaven grant i may carton but how i am going to tell you how it will depend on you and it could depend on no better man this new denunciation will certainly not take place until after to-morrow probably not until two or three days afterwards more probably a week afterwards you know it is a capital crime to mourn for or sympathise with a victim of the guillotine. She and her father would unquestionably be guilty of this crime, and this woman, the inveteracy of whose pursuit cannot be described, would wait to add that strength to her case and make herself doubly sure. You follow me? So attentively, and with so much confidence in what you say, that for the moment I lose sight— touching the back of the doctor's chair, of even this distress. "'You have money, and can buy the means of travelling to the sea-coast, as quickly as the journey can be made. Your preparations have been completed for some days to return to England. Early to-morrow have your horses ready, so that they may be in starting trim at two o'clock in the afternoon.' "'It shall be done.' His manner was so fervent and inspiring, that Mr. Lorry caught the flame, and was as quick as youth. "'You are a noble heart. Didn't I say we could depend upon no better man?' "'Tell her, to-night, what you know of her danger as involving her child and her father. Dwell upon that, for she would lay her own fair head beside her husband's cheerfully.' He faltered for an instant, then went on as before. For the sake of her child and her father, press upon her the necessity of leaving Paris with them and you at that hour. Tell her that it was her husband's last arrangement. Tell her that more depends upon it than she dare believe or hope. You think that her father, even in this sad state, will submit himself to her, do you not? Oh, I am sure of it. I thought so. Quietly and steadily have all these arrangements made in the courtyard here, even to the taking of your own seat in the carriage. The moment I come to you, take me in, and drive away. I understand that I wait for you under all circumstances. You have my certificate in your hand with the rest, you know, and will reserve my place. Wait for nothing but to have my place occupied, and then for England.' "'Why, then,' said Mr. Lorry, Grasping his eager but so firm and steady hand, it does not all depend on one old man, but I shall have a young and ardent man at my side. By the help of heaven you shall. Promise me solemnly that nothing will influence you to alter the course on which we now stand pledged to one another. Nothing, Carton. Remember these words to morrow. Change the course, or delay it, for any reason and no life can possibly be saved, and many lives must inevitably be sacrificed. I will remember them. I hope to do my part faithfully. And I hope to do mine. Now, good-bye." Though he said it with a grave smile of earnestness, and though he even put the old man's hand to his lips, he did not part from him then. He helped him so far to arouse the rocking-figure before the dying embers, as to get a cloak and hat put upon it, and to tempt it forth to find where the bench and work were hidden, that it still moaningly besought to have. He walked on the other side of it, and protected it to the courtyard of the house, where the afflicted heart, so happy in the memorable time when he had revealed his own desolate heart to it, outwatched watched the awful night. He entered the courtyard. And remained there for a few moments alone, looking up at the light in the window of her room. Before he went away, he breathed a blessing towards it, and a farewell. Chapter thirteen, fifty two. In the black prison of the conciergerie, the doomed of the day awaited their fate. They were in number as the weeks of the year. Fifty-two were to roll that afternoon on the life tide of the city to the boundless everlasting sea. Before their cells were quit of them, new occupants were appointed. Before their blood ran into the blood spilled yesterday, the blood that was to mingle with theirs to-morrow was already set apart. Two score and twelve were told off, from the farmer general of seventy, whose riches could not buy his life, to the seamstress of twenty whose poverty and obscurity could not save her. Physical diseases engendered in the vices and neglects of men will seize on victims of all degrees, and the frightful moral disorder, born of unspeakable suffering, intolerable oppression, and heartless indifference, smote equally without distinction. Charles Darnay, alone in a cell, had sustained himself with no flattering delusion since he had come to it from the tribunal in every line of the narrative he had heard, he had heard his condemnation. He had fully comprehended that no personal influence could possibly save him, that he was virtually sentenced by the millions, and that units could avail him nothing. Nevertheless, it was not easy, with the face of his beloved wife fresh before him, to compose his mind to what it must bear. His hold on life was strong, and it was very, very hard to loosen. By gradual efforts and degrees, unclosed a little here, it clenched the tighter there, and when he brought his strength to bear on that hand, and it yielded, this was closed again. There was a hurry, too, in all his thoughts, a turbulent and heated working of his heart that contended against resignation. If, for a moment, he did feel resigned, then his wife and child, who had to live after him, seemed to protest and to make it a selfish thing. But all this was at first. Before long, the consideration that there was no disgrace in the fate he must meet, and that numbers went the same road wrongfully and trod it firmly every day, sprang up to stimulate him. Next followed the thought that much of the future peace of mind enjoyable by the dear ones, dependent on his quiet fortitude. So, by degrees, he calmed into the better state, when he could raise his thoughts much higher, and draw comfort down. Before it had set in dark on the night of his condemnation, he had travelled thus far on his last way. Being allowed to purchase the means of writing and a light, he sat down to write until such time as the prison lamps should be extinguished. He wrote a long letter to Lucy, showing her that he had known nothing of her father's imprisonment until he had heard of it from herself and that he had been as ignorant as she of his father's and uncle's responsibility for that misery until the paper had been read he had already explained to her that his concealment from herself of the name he had relinquished was the one condition fully intelligible now that her father had attached to their betrothal and was the one promise he had still exacted on the morning of their marriage. He entreated her, for her father's sake, never to seek to know whether her father had become oblivious of the existence of the paper, or had had it recalled to him, for the moment, or for good, by the story of the tower, on that old Sunday, under the dear old plane-tree in the garden. If he had preserved any definite remembrance of it, There could be no doubt that he had supposed it destroyed with the Bastille, when he had found no mention of it among the relics of prisoners which the populace had discovered there, and which had been described to all the world. He besought her, though he added that he knew it was needless, to console her father by impressing him through every tender means she could think of, with the truth that he had done nothing for which he could justly reproach himself, But had uniformly forgotten himself for their joint sakes. Next to her preservation of his own last grateful love and blessing, and her overcoming her sorrow to devote herself to their dear child, he adjured her, as they would meet in heaven, to comfort her father. To her father himself he wrote in the same strain, but he told her father that he expressly confided his wife and child to his care, and he told him this very strongly, with the hope of rousing him from any despondency or dangerous retrospect towards which he foresaw he might be tending. To Mr. Lorry he commended them all, and explained his worldly affairs. That done, with many added sentences of grateful friendship and warm attachment, all was done. He never thought of Carton. His mind was so full of the others, that he never once thought of him. He had time to finish these letters before the lights were put out when he lay down on his straw bed he thought he had done with this world but it beckoned him back in his sleep and showed itself in shining forms free and happy back in the old house in soho though it had nothing in it like the real house unaccountably released and light of heart he was with lucy again and she told him it was all a dream and he had never gone away A pause of forgetfulness, and then he had even suffered and had come back to her, dead and at peace, and yet there was no difference in him. Another pause of oblivion, and he awoke in the sombre morning, unconscious where he was or what had happened, until it flashed upon his mind, This is the day of my death. Thus had he come through the hours to the day when the fifty-two heads were to fall. And now, while he was composed, and hoped that he could meet the end with quiet heroism, a new action began in his waking thoughts which was very difficult to master. He had never seen the instrument that was to terminate his life. How high it was from the ground, how many steps it had, where he would be stood, how he would be touched, whether the touching hands would be dyed red, which way his face would be turned, whether he would be the first, or might be the last, These, and many similar questions, in no wise directed by his will, obtruded themselves over and over again, countless times. Neither were they connected with fear. He was conscious of no fear. Rather, they originated in a strange besetting desire to know what to do when the time came. A desire gigantically disproportionate to the few swift moments to which it referred, a wondering that was more like the wondering of some other spirit within his than his own. The hours went on as he walked to and fro, and the clocks struck the numbers he would never hear again. Nine gone for ever, ten gone for ever, eleven gone for ever, twelve coming on to pass away. After a hard context with that eccentric action of thought which had last perplexed him, he had got the better of it. He walked up and down, softly repeating their names to himself. The worst of the strife was over. He could walk up and down, free from distracting fancies, praying for himself and for them. 12. Gone for ever. He had been apprised that the final hour was three, and he knew he would be summoned some time earlier, inasmuch as the tumbrils jolted heavily and slowly through the streets. therefore he resolved to keep two before his mind as the hour, and so to strengthen himself in the interval, that he might be able, after that time, to strengthen others. Walking regularly to and fro, with his arms folded on his breast, a very different man from the prisoner who had walked to and fro at La Force, he heard one struck away from him without surprise. The hour had measured like most other hours. Devoutly thankful to heaven for his recovered self-possession, he thought, "'There is but another now,' and turned to walk again. Footsteps in the stone passage outside the door. He stopped. The key was put in the lock, and turned. Before the door was opened, or as it opened, a man said, in a low voice, in English, "'He has never seen me here. I have kept out of his way.' Go you in alone. I wait near. Lose no time. The door was quickly opened and closed, and there stood before him, face to face, quiet, intent upon him, with the light of a smile on his features and a cautionary finger on his lip, Sydney Carton. There was something so bright and remarkable in his look that, for the first moment, the prisoner misdoubted him to be an apparition of his own imagining but he spoke, and it was his voice. He took the prisoner's hand, and it was his real grasp. "'Of all the people upon earth, you least expected to see me?' he said. "'I could not believe it to be you. I can scarcely believe it now. "'You are not—' the apprehension came suddenly into his mind. "'A prisoner? No. I am accidentally possessed of a power over one of the keepers here.' and in virtue of it, I stand before you. I come from her—your wife, dear Darnay." The prisoner wrung his hand. "'I bring you a request from her.' "'What is it?' "'A most earnest, pressing, and emphatic entreaty, addressed to you in the most pathetic tones of the voice so dear to you, that you well remember.' The prisoner turned his face partly aside you have no time to ask me why i bring it or what it means i have no time to tell you you must comply with it take off those boots you wear and draw on these of mine there was a chair against the wall of the cell behind the prisoner carton pressing forward had already with the speed of lightning got him down into it and stood over him barefoot draw on these boots of mine put your hands to them put your will to them quick carton there is no escaping from this place it never can be done you will only die with me it is madness it would be madness if i asked you to escape but do i when i ask you to pass out that door tell me it is madness and remain here change that cravat for this of mine that coat for this of mine while you do it Let me take this ribbon from your hair, and shake out your hair like this of mine." With wonderful quickness, and with a strength both of will and action, that appeared quite supernatural, he forced all these changes upon him. The prisoner was like a young child in his hands. "'Carton! Dear Carton, it is madness! It cannot be accomplished! It never can be done! It has been attempted, and has always failed! I implore you not to add your death to the bitterness of mine. Do I ask you, my dear Darnay, to pass the door? When I ask that, refuse. There are pen and ink and paper on this table. Is your hand steady enough to write? It was when you came in. Steady it again, and write what I shall dictate. Quick, friend, quick!" Pressing his hand to his bewildered head, Darnay sat down at the table. Carton, with his right hand in his breast, stood close beside him. Write exactly as I speak. To whom do I address it? To no one. Carton still had his hand in his breast. Do I date it? No. The prisoner looked up at each question. Carton, standing over him with his hand in his breast, looked down. If you remember, said Carton, dictating, the words that passed between us, long ago, you will readily comprehend this when you see it. You do remember them, I know. It is not in your nature to forget them." He was drawing his hand from his breast. The prisoner, chancing to look up in his hurried wonder, as he wrote, the hand stopped, closing upon something. "'Have you written, Forget Them?' Carton asked. "'I have. Is that a weapon in your hand? No, I am not armed.' what is it in your hand? You shall know directly. Write on, there are but a few words more," he dictated again. "'I am thankful that the time has come when I can prove them. That I do so is no subject for regrets or grief.' As he said these words, with his eyes fixed on the writer, his hand slowly and softly moved down close to the writer's face. The pen dropped from Darnay's fingers on the table, and he looked about him vacantly. "'What vapour is that?' he asked. "Vapor? Something that crossed me. I am conscious of nothing. There can be nothing here. Take up the pen and finish. Hurry! Hurry!' As if his memory were impaired, or his faculties disordered, the prisoner made an effort to rally his attention. As it looked at Carton with clouded eyes, and with an altered manner of breathing, Carton, his hand again in his breast, looked steadily at him. "'Hurry! Hurry!' The prisoner bent over the paper once more. "'If it had been otherwise—' Carton's hand was again watchfully and softly stealing down—'I never should have used the longer opportunity. If it had been otherwise—' The hand was at the prisoner's face. I should have had so much the more to answer for. If it had been otherwise, Carton looked at the pen, and saw it was trailing off into unintelligible signs. Carton's hand moved back to his breast no more. The prisoner sprang up with a reproachful look, but Carton's hand was close and firm at his nostrils, and Carton's left arm caught him round the waist. For a few seconds he faintly struggled with the man who had come to lay down his life for him but within a minute or so, he was stretched insensible on the ground. Quickly, but with hands as true to the purpose as his heart was, Carton dressed himself in the clothes the prisoner had laid aside, combed back his hair, and tied it with the ribbon the prisoner had worn. Then he softly called, "'Enter there! Come in!' and the spy presented himself. "'You see?' said carton looking up as he kneeled on one knee beside the insensible figure putting the paper in the breast is your hazard very great mr carton the spy answered with a timid snap of his fingers my hazard is not that in the thick of business here if you are true to the whole of your bargain don't fear me i will be true to the death you must be mr carton if the tale of fifty-two is to be right being made right by you in that dress, I shall have no fear. Have no fear. I shall soon be out of the way of harming you, and the rest will soon be far from here, please God. Now, get assistance, and take me to the coach. You, said the spy nervously, him, man, with whom I have exchanged, you go out at the gate by which you brought me in? Of course i was weak and faint when you brought me in and i am fainter now you take me out the parting interview has overpowered me such a thing has happened here often and too often your life is in your own hands quick call assistance you swear not to betray me said the trembling spy as he paused for a last moment man returned carton stamping his foot have i sworn by no solemn vow already to go through with this that you waste the precious moments now take him yourself to the courtyard you know of place him yourself in the carriage show him yourself to mr lorry tell him yourself to give him no restorative but air and to remember my words of last night and his promise of last night and drive away The spy withdrew, and Carton seated himself at the table, resting his forehead on his hands. The spy returned immediately, with two men. "'How, then?' said one of them, contemplating the fallen figure. "'So afflicted to find that his friend has drawn a prize in the lottery of saint guillotine A good patriot,' said the other, "'could hardly have been more afflicted if the aristocrat had drawn a blank.' They raised the unconscious figure, placed it on a litter they had brought to the door, and bent to carry it away. "'The time is short, Evremond,' said the spy, in a warning voice. "'I know it well,' answered Carton. "'Be careful of my friend, I entreat you, and leave me.' "'Come then, my children,' said Barsad. "'Lift him, and come away.' The door closed, and Carton was left alone. Straining his powers of listening to the utmost, he listened for any sound that might denote suspicion or alarm. There was none. Keys turned, doors clashed, footsteps passed along distant passages. No cry was raised or hurry made that seemed unusual. Breathing more freely in a little while, he sat down at the table, and listened again until the clock struck two. Sounds that he was not afraid of, for he divined their meaning, then began to be audible. Several doors were opened in succession, and finally his own. A jailer, with a list in his hand, looked in, merely saying, "'Follow me, Evremond,' and he followed into a large dark room at a distance. It was a dark winter day, and what with the shadows within, and what with the shadows without, he could but dimly discern the others who were brought there to have their arms bound. Some were standing, some seated. Some were lamenting, and in restless motion. But these were few. The great majority were silent and still, looking fixedly at the ground. As he stood by the wall in a dim corner, while some of the fifty-two were brought in after him, one man stopped in passing to embrace him as having a knowledge of him. It thrilled him with a great dread of discovery. But the man went on. A very few moments after that, a young woman, with a slight girlish form, a sweet spare face in which there was no vestige of colour, and large, widely opened, patient eyes, rose from the seat where he had observed her sitting and came to speak to him. Citizen Evremonde, she said, touching him with her cold hand, I am a poor little seamstress who was with you in La Force. He murmured for answer, True. I forget what you were accused of. Plots though the just heaven knows that-that I am innocent of any is it likely who would think of plotting with a poor little weak creature like me the forlorn smile with which she said it so touched him that tears started from his eyes i am not afraid to die citizen evremonde but i have done nothing i am not unwilling to die if the republic which is to do so much good to us poor will profit by my death, but I do not know how that can be, Citizen Ephremond, such a poor, weak little creature." As the last thing on earth that his heart was to warm and soften to, it warmed and softened to this pitiable girl. "'I heard you were released, Citizen Evrémond. I hoped it was true. It was, but I was again taken and condemned if i may ride with you citizen evremond will you let me hold your hand i am not afraid but i am little and weak and it will give me more courage as the patient eyes were lifted to his face he saw a sudden doubt in them and then astonishment he pressed the work-worn hunger-worn young fingers and touched his lips are you dying for him she whispered and his wife and child. Hush! Yes. Oh, you will let me hold your brave hand, stranger? Hush! Yes, my poor sister, to the last. The same shadows that are falling on the prison are falling, in that same hour of the early afternoon, on the barrier with the crowd about it, when a coach, going out of Paris, drives up to be examined who goes here whom have we within papers the papers are handed out and read alexandre manette physician french which is he this is he this helpless inarticulately murmuring wandering old man pointed out apparently the citizen doctor is not in his right mind the revolution fever will have been too much for him greatly too much for him Ah, many suffer with it. Lucy, his daughter, French. Which is she? This is she. Apparently it must be. Lucy, the wife of Evremond, is it not? It is. Ah, Evremond has an assignation elsewhere. Lucy, her child, English. This is she? She and no other kiss me, child of Evremonde. Now, thou hast kissed a good Republican, something new in thy family. Remember it. Sidney Carton, advocate, English. Which is he? He lies here, in this corner of the carriage. He, too, is pointed out. Apparently, the English advocate is in a swoon. It is hoped he will recover in the fresher air it is represented that he is not in strong health, and has separated sadly from a friend who is under the displeasure of the Republic. Is that all? It is not a great deal, that. Many are under the displeasure of the Republic, and must look out at the little window." Jarvis Lorry, banker, English, which is he? I am he, necessarily being the last. It is Jarvis Lorry who has replied to all the previous questions. It is Jarvis Lorry who has alighted and stands with his hand on the coach door, replying to a group of officials. They leisurely walk round the carriage and leisurely mount the box to look at what little luggage it carries on the roof. The country people, hanging about, press nearer to the coach doors and greedily stare in. A little child, carried by its mother, has its short arm held out for it that it might touch the wife of an aristocrat who has gone to the guillotine behold your papers jarvis lorry countersigned one can depart citizen one can depart forward my postilions a good journey i salute you citizens and the first danger passed these are again the words of jarvis lorry as he clasps his hands and looks upward there is terror in the carriage there is weeping there is the heavy breathing of the insensible traveller are we not going too slowly can they not be induced to go faster asks lucy clinging to the old man it would seem like flight my darling i must not urge them too much it would rouse suspicion look back and see if we are pursued the road is clear my dearest so far we are not pursued houses in twos and threes pass by us solitary farms ruinous buildings dye-works tanneries and the like open country avenues of leafless trees the hard uneven pavement is under us the soft deep mud is on either side sometimes we strike into the skirting mud to avoid the stones that clatter us and shake us sometimes we stick in ruts and sloughs there the agony of our impatience is then so great that in our wild alarm and hurry we are for getting out and running hiding Doing anything but stopping. Out of the open country, in again among ruinous buildings, solitary farms, dye works, tanneries, and the like, cottages in twos and threes, avenues of leafless trees. Have these men deceived us, and taken us back by another road? Is not this the same place twice over? Thank heaven, no. A village. Look back, look back, and see if we are pursued. Hush! The posting house. Leisurely, our four horses are taken out. Leisurely, the coach stands in the little street, bereft of horses, and with no likelihood upon it of ever moving again. Leisurely, the new horses come into visible existence, one by one. Leisurely, the new postilions follow, sucking and plaiting the lashes of their whips. Leisurely, the old postilions count their money, make wrong additions, and arrive at dissatisfied results. All the time, Our over-fraught hearts are beating at a rate that would far outstrip the fastest gallop of the fastest horses ever foaled. At length, the new postilions are in their saddles, and the old are left behind. We are through the village, up the hill and down the hill, and on the low watery grounds. Suddenly, the postilions exchange speech with animated gesticulation, and the horses are pulled up, almost on their haunches. We are pursued? Oh, within the carriage, there speak then, what is it? asks Mr. Lorry, looking out a window, How many did you say? I do not understand you at the last post. How many to the guillotine to-day fifty-two I said so. a brave number. My fellow-citizen here would have it forty-two. Ten more heads are worth having. The guillotine goes handsomely i love it i forward whoop the night comes on dark he moves more he is beginning to revive and to speak intelligibly he thinks they are still together he asks them by his name what he has in his hand oh piteous kind heaven and help us look out look out and see if we are pursued the wind is rushing after us and the clouds are flying after us, and the moon is plunging after us, and the whole wild night is in pursuit of us. But so far we are pursued by nothing else. End of part six.